So the title of my sermon today is Dignity Conferred. I'm going to talk about a verse that sounds disturbing, out of character. But before we go into the Bible, let us pray. Father God, we pray for your spirit to come speak. Lord, use your word, use me, use whatever is required that we may understand your heart. Lord, may we hear from you and may we seek to implement that new understanding into our lives and live it in your presence. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So tell me again, just to refresh your memory, John 2.15. John chapter 2, verse 15. It's like right in the beginning, right? Jesus starts his ministry. John, the apostle, makes an awesome introduction of the word. We see his baptism. John the Baptist points him out as the Lamb of God. Really, like, really high, a spiritual high. And then Jesus calls his disciples, right? If you don't realize that we're in a month, we're talking a lot about discipleship, following Jesus. See, I was just meeting with Margaret the other day, and I shared with her that there's no such thing as non-followers of Christ uh, sitting in the pews, followers of Christ, and disciples. There's no such thing. It's either you're not a follower of Christ, and after your baptism, you're a disciple of Christ. There's only two categories in the Bible, right? So Jesus calls his disciple. They follow him. He attends this awesome event, a wedding at Cana, and he performed his first miracle. John calls it the first sign. He turns water into wine, feeds the whole wedding party. Everybody thinks it's the best wine ever. The very next story, after this celebration, happiness, Jesus blessing a wedding, is this event. 2.15. And he goes to the temple, right? Passover is at hand. Verse 15. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he pour out the coins of the money changers and overturn the tables. What a contrast of Jesus secretly behind the scene, tell nobody, turning the water into wine, blessing the, the, the party that attended, and him standing in front of the crowd, most likely in the outer court of the temple. It's not like the church today. There's an outer court, there's an inner court where you, you separate the people, and all this transaction happens in the outer court, and he goes there, he makes a whip, he overturns the table, he tosses the coins on the floor, really angry Jesus. Very contrasting of this loving, lamb-like Jesus with this really angry, whip, uh, court Jesus that we may tend to ignore or try to neglect. But the fact is, this is his second out, open ministry action. Have you ever looked at Jesus as this guy who takes a week and whoosh? Of course, if you look at some of the old classic painting, he was whipping people, bah, hitting people. Uh, really angry. But do you notice that one of the very first things is you do not find the word angry. In fact, I think it was very meticulous. Go to the verse. And making a whip of coin. You could see him just walking around the temple and he was just making stuff. He didn't like, it was not a sudden impulsive reaction. He saw it, he got angry, he whipped people. No, he took time. He made a whip. 
I don't know whether you've made a whip before. I haven't, but I don't think it's going to be like easily made. It takes a little bit of time. And he was intentional, and he walked. And you look at the very next thing that was mentioned. It's not the humans, not the merchants. It was the sheep and the oxen. It is not this whip where you see Singapore, if you're, if you're naughty, yeah, you get rotan. Not that. Most likely it's a whip that they use to drive the oxen and cattle out of the, or move them along for, for pasture. At no point was emotion men- mentioned just yet. It's our imagination who fills in the gap. For him, he was, he was chasing them out. And of course, with so many oxen, cattle, and pigeons, and all this, you need some instrument that to, to move them along. Then he goes, this is where we think he's really angry. He goes to the coin and he pours out the coin. This is not just offering, right? It's not me going to that and then pouring out the offering. No, these are coins that is a very specific temple currency. So the Pharisees uh, and the priests and the Sadducees, and all those who are working in the temple, has this system where if you come to Jerusalem for worship, especially during Passover, you have to purchase the sacrifice, right? You can't possibly drive your cattle all the way from Galilee to Jerusalem. It's going to be really difficult with throngs and throngs of people moving down south. And so what they, they had a system, very logical, very practical, and maybe we would do something similarly today if that was required. And so they, they had people coming from different places. You know, you have the, the, the diaspora, the Jews were coming from different countries. They didn't have, all have like the same kind of currency. And so just like today, there'll be a money changer who, who kind of like want to synchronize the, the exchange and they will all require you to exchange your foreign currency into the temple currency. Then using the temple currency, you can buy your sacrifices. Very logical, very practical, very helpful, in fact. So why did Jesus get angry? It was like out of the goodwill of the church to facilitate what was required by the church, right? That's the problem. They saw an opportunity to make money. What happened was, and this is, this is, of course, not in the Scripture, but external record will show that they will jack up the exchange rate. They'll make it really ridiculous. And so it's so much, the exchange is so bad because they are fully controlled and determined and defined by the temple people, the priests. And so whatever they say, you're going to give it to them. And because you're here to the only temple you can, you're supposed to go during Passover in Jerusalem, and if you want to sacrifice and unmarry with God, you better follow the instructions. And so even if they say, one ringgit for five sing dollars, you have to do it. Because that's what's required. So that was what Jesus was not comfortable with. That's why he was going against that people were using the church system to make money and requiring this transaction to happen in order to gain relationship with God. And he overturned it. But let's go to the question. Did Jesus get angry? As I said, it's not mentioned. It's not mentioned. You can't find the word angry there. But I'd like to propose to you, yes, he did. Yes, Jesus got angry. But the word for angry here is not the irrational driver, road rage kind of anger. 
So to understand his anger, we must ask ourselves, why did Jesus get angry? Adam Grant is an organizational psychologist, and he writes about anger. He says anger is often seen as an irrational emotion, but it's not due to the absence of logic. It's due to the presence of threat or harm. Getting mad is a sign that something important to you is at risk. Understanding what makes you angry is a prism for understanding what you value. So what did Jesus value that trigger that the word that is mentioned there is zeal, passion? It drove him to compel him to act. What is his underlying principle that caused him to be angry? Verse 16. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. That was what he was upset about. It is not the presence of cattle's pigeons in the temple out of court. That has been the case since the Old Testament. Seeing animals daily roaming around the temple is a normal thing. If you read Leviticus, they had daily sacrifice. Each family had to offer daily sacrifice of thanksgiving or repentance or required by whatever festival that's happening. It was a constant thing. Priests in the Old Testament were like butchers, nonstop. So Jesus would not be offended by the presence of animals. And the animals themselves, they can't choose where they'll be. But the problem is that the people have made the temple a house of transaction. And it's funny that he spoke to the dove sellers and he didn't just kick them out and overturn their doves. Because why were doves present? Because doves was for the people who cannot afford to buy the cattle. Because of the crazy exchange rate, some of them with money that they would normally be sufficient to buy cattle and oxen and sheep in other places would not have enough and they can only afford the doves. Which was defined that if you don't have enough money for a poor family, poor uh, background, you can use doves to replace the cattle. And he knows that these people was providing also a way out for the poor and needy and those who needed support. But he was saying, and oftentimes we would think that he's speaking to individuals in the scripture, but very often if you look at the, the tense that he's speaking, he was not speaking to the seller, he was speaking to the multitude. Speaking to many times his disciple and the crowd, and says, do not make my house a house of transaction. He was not talking to the dove seller. He was talking to everybody present in the temple. One of the things that is very amazing about Taiwan my half-home, half um, that we haven't been back for about two years, is the crazy vending machine. Like, it is so awesome. You can buy like a tap-tai-peng from vending machine. Fresh tap-tai-peng, you know? It's not even like heat up. No, it's fresh tap-tai-peng. Like, amazing. Then you can like freshly bake cake. When you order... The machine starts baking. So crazy. Then, of course, you get instant ramen that they cook for you. Not instant noodle. Ramen. Tonkatsu. 
Then the thing that really impressed me as I walked through the subway, that a lot of the, the blue line that we, uh, where my wife lives on, um, the, the subway actually connects the underground for quite a few stations, and sometimes we just don't take the, the MRT. We just walk for like a few hours. And they have like portable vending machine library. So you can, you can borrow books on the go and return to any books. And these machines, sometimes they'll have this robot that come and collect and return them to the right vending machine. So amazing. Love it. But the thing with vending machines is this, right? Now it's better. Last time, they unique coins. You know, unique coins. So that's my, my thing with Lucas. He doesn't understand. All right, so... So we'll go to the vending machine and he'll get, want me to buy something and I'll do this. Papa, no coin. And actually, it's true. I don't carry coins. I just chuck it in my car. My car has a lot of coins, but I don't carry it around because it's so heavy. So I can't buy. But nowadays, vending machine people, eh? pay wave. What's up with the pay wave for vending machine? For those, also those kiddie cars? Pay wave. Stop it. Stop making it so easy. Keep with the coins. But the thing with vending machine is this, right? You look at the machine, you see an item that you want, you see the price, if you're comfortable with the price, you pay, you press, you get it. Very clear, very simple. You get very angry if you see an item, you see a price, you pay, you press, it doesn't come out. You kick the vending machine. <laughs> Still doesn't come out, right? Or you see an item, you see the price, then you see the red light bling. Sold out. That always happens when we go to like ride bicycle at some of the parks, and then there'll be this vending machine for like isotonic drinks. Always empty one. Always. Like <laughs> every time. Don't people bring their own water bottles? First thing, vending machine is this, right? You pay expect to get the goods. And that defines the mindset of current society people. If I pay the price, if I'm willing to pay the right price, I should get what I want. I should receive what in my mind I think I'm promised. And it permeates our entire being in every single thing. I was chatting with a friend who was enrolling in, a, in an online course with a university, and he was complaining. I wouldn't name the, the university, but it's a prestigious university. But because of the recent COVID, he couldn't fly to the country. So all his classes were online. He's like, wow, Bohua, man. I paid so much money. I should be there, soaking in the, the, the ambience, receiving my education through osmosis. But I can't. I'm just watching Zoom all day. Not Zoom. He used Team View. Eh? Uh, if he, he feels like he's been shortchanged. He said, I'm, I wrote to them to reduce my, my course fee because I didn't get to be there in person. I paid for in-person class, but I'm getting Zoom class. Yeah, it like, mm, feels like you should write them. You know? I kind of like, yeah, I agree with you, right? So there's a lot of this expectation that if I pay the price for a certain thing that I expect, I should get it. And so a lot of people come to church with a similar mindset. 
Pastor James preaching today, uh, hey, uh, offering two dollars. Pastor James not preaching ten. Daniel Kim preaching hundred. Hey. <laughs> but he said there's this transactional thing, right? If I go, if I pay the price, I give offering, I should get something. I should receive it. You know? But when we don't, we get upset. Ah, today's church was a waste of time. See, the temple to Jesus cannot be a place of transaction. The temple, ever since it was destroyed, the original temple, has been redefined. Because the, the first temple was actually not a temple that Solomon built. The first temple was actually first found in the Garden of Eden. Eden in itself was the temple. And at that point, you must understand it's before sin happened. And the greatest reward of the temple was nothing else but the presence of God Himself. That the scripture was clear that God walked with Adam and Eve. And continuously, that has been God's striving, His theme. When they had the temple, the, the sanctuary in the wilderness as they traveled, there was this thing called the Shekinah. Shekinah is a Hebrew word, but it's not a biblical word, actually. And if you ask a rabbi, I once asked him about the word Shekinah, he says Shekinah is in the old tale of the Hebrew rabbi. He says it's a light that brings attention to the presence of God when you have forgotten His, his existence. That's what Shekinah is. So in the, in the wilderness, in the midst of this rugged terrain, mountains, desert, enemies, snakes... The Shekinah was in the sanctuary, in the middle of how they encamped themselves for the Israelites as they escaped from Egypt. And the Shekinah represents God's presence, not defined by the building material, but defined by God's emanating light to remind you that I am still here with you. And the very first thing that human does when we have something broken, like in Adam and Eve, when they, when they first sinned, it's our human reaction to try and hide and run away from the presence of God. And the temple of God is seeking to redeem that, to say, stop running away from God and come back into His presence. Because by extension, then, God says, I need to do more than use buildings. Because in Scripture, He says, now I make all of you mini temples of my presence. So it cannot be transactional. Instead, the temple, instead of being transactional, our faith and relationship and way of interacting with God must be transformational. As the presence of God takes over, we must give up control of how we manage the temple instead of trying to maintain this transactional mindset that, God, if I go to church, if I read my Bible, if I pray, then you must bless me. If you don't bless me, maybe my transaction price, I didn't pay enough. Or, you're a bad seller. You didn't fulfill your promise to me. And it constantly happens, even in my own life, and people that have been talking to me, says, they would say, James, explain to me as a pastor. I say, what am I supposed to explain? I've been such a good Christian, 
Why is it blah, blah, blah? Recently, it seems to be a theme the past few months. I've been such a good Christian, God. Why am I still single? I like, find me a verse that says that if a good Christian must, must get a spouse, I don't find it. But then I realized it's not that. It was a very transactional thing. I've been a good Christian. God should bless me. I've been doing this. God should give me that. I come to church. God should be nice. I pray, right? I should grow in faith. I read the Bible. I should know God better. So there's three views of salvation. So as we share about discipleship, to go out and make disciples of all nations, what are we telling them? It's very important for us to understand what salvation are we offering to people. And this is a theme because there is the baptism, two new babies in the family. We must tell them the correct thing as a church and not tell them something that's false. So there's three views of salvation. Salvation can be seen as a transactional deal. I'm baptized. I pay tithe, I come to church, I'm a good person, I go heaven. Or salvation as a unilateral action, which some denomination believes that I kalka, God bless me. I will talk more about it, it's a very crude summary. Or can salvation be seen differently as a reciprocal relationship? That's what we've experienced in many parts of our lives with our family, our loved ones, that there's this interchange, exchange, connection. So how do you know? Which mindset do you have? Salvation as transactional deal is this. You look at all things faith. If you, then heal. Right? Even in our counsel to people, if you're a good boy, huh, I will buy you that toy. That's me huh, as a father, a transactional relationship with my son. with my friend. Uh, if, you, if you pay for this meal, then I will do that thing you asked me to do. Lah. Right? There's always this kind of transaction. Eh? Do we see our salvation as this? If you follow God's commandments to the T, I'll see you in heaven. Or it's a unilateral he brings me to heaven. I do nothing. I just wait. Very passive. Just like, God is good, right? God is merciful. God is graceful. God is awesome. But God is not personal. So I don't need to care about Him. I just wait for the right time to come. I don't even have to go to church. I don't even have to read my Bible. I don't even have to pray. I don't need to do anything. Lah. Don't need to do. No need. Anything. If I do anything, I'm legalist. Any action on my part will cheapen the grace of God. So I just sit. You go tell your nutritionist and your, your gym trainer that. Hey, I want to lose weight. Okay. But I just want to sit here and lose weight. Can I? Don't eat anything also. Then you'll slowly lose weight and waste away and die. Or like, you know, you go to, you go to say, I have this, this friend who, can't, who teaches swimming still. And you have people who say, hey, I'm going to be schooling. And my friend look at him. I'm not even schooling. How to make you schooling? Leh? They say, no, I'm willing to train hard. Okay. So he shared with him schooling's training plan when he win the Olympic gold. 
four hours swim in the morning, two hours gym, you have lunch, two hours swim, four hours of stretching exercise, you have dinner, then do another four hours of swim. Every day. You want to be schooling? No la. Can I cut half? <laughs> then you be you be ling la. Right, well, well, there's this attitude of like just sit back, do nothing, and want to get the results. In fact, that is a lot of new mindset today. It's not even transactional. It's just like passively, I deserve. And this is very, very much my struggle. This is the struggle of entitlement. I should. I should. I deserve this. Why? Just because I'm alive. Or we can look at salvation differently. Salvation can be a reciprocal relationship. He loves me, so I respond in love. Not because I have to, because I choose to. Because He, he has given me so much, not requiring anything, and I, because I'm filled with His love, I respond in love. I can reject. That's true salvation, I think. You can reject but you can also accept. God is not trying to blackmail you with His love. God is not trying to force you with His love, but He can't help Himself. He loves you. Even though you've not followed His instruction, He still continues to love you and invite you back to this relationship with Him. And your actions are not driven by obligation, legalism, but it's driven by because I love Him. I seek to honor Him. I seek to do things that, that draws me to Him. I want to grow in my relationship with Him, not because I need to, but I want to. Not because I feel guilt and shame for being in church all these years and not being closer to Jesus, because like, I really want to know Him more. I really want to love Him more. And the, the awesome thing about love is I want to tell people about Him. I'll be like, you know what? I met this guy. His name is Jesus. I love Him so much. Why is He awesome? Let me tell you. Do you have three hours? Not because Pastor James says, uh, as a Christian, now I have to share. Lah. Hey guys, I'm a Christian. I got baptized. Uh, you should believe in Jesus. Why? Because pastors say, if I don't do it, it's a bad, I'm a bad Christian. Then please don't share. <laughs> it should be an overflow of love that fills you and then you can't help but outpours to people that you tell them, that I, I love you so much that I need to tell you about this person I really love. Rich Velodas write, uh, writes a, a recent book that he said about the, the Christian walk as a deeply formed life, not a shallow experience, but a deeply formed. For those who follow my Instagram, <laughs> I always share his Insta, it's awesome. But this is what he, he wrote recently. The word Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. See the presence language? The Word didn't become a religious system. The Word didn't become a theological checklist. The Word didn't become a political movement. The Word didn't become an aesthetic experience. The Word became flesh, a loving, embodied existence. As a temple of God, all of us, we come together, the temple is enlarged. But this temple will not be complete if the presence of God is not with us. And it must start in our personal experience with Him having a presence in our lives and corporately coming together to expand that presence to others. 
The Shekinah is still with us. The Shekinahs can use us. Shekinah doesn't have to be shielded behind curtains anymore. Shekinah now must shine in this dark, dark world that is covered by the curtain of darkness. So to end, church, He wants a relationship with you, not a transaction. Amen. For the closing song, we'll sing Holy, Holy, Holy. As we go from today's gathering, may your presence be continually poured into our lives, that wherever we go, we will seek to be the Shekinah shining out for others to see you. Be with us, Lord, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.